You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with David J. Linden, the author of Unique, the New Science of Human Individuality. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. So even though I'm not a geneticist and I really don't work on these topics, I thought I would dive in because it really is, it's a fundamental human question. How do we become individuals? It's a basic thing about being alive and thinking. So to me, the appeal was clear. Nature versus nurture is a phrase that was popularized by Francis Galton in the late 19th century. And the idea behind it is that if you were to look at a particular trait, say shyness or height, let's take height because that's easy. You could say, well, to what degree can we attribute height to nature, in this case, meaning the gene variants that you inherit from your parents, versus Nurture, in this case, meaning how you were raised by your parents and by your community. And I have many problems with this expression. Part of it is that the nature part shouldn't just mean genetics. In other words, there's all kinds of biological things that are not genetic things. So let me give you an example. If your mother fought off a viral infection while you were developing in utero, then you have a much higher chance of developing schizophrenia or autism when you grow up. Now, that's biological, but it's not hereditary. That's not something that you would then acquire and then pass on to your own children. It only happens in the one generation. The other problem is when we hear the word nurture, we really focus on the family, how your parents raised you or failed to raise you, how your community was involved. And those things are very important, but they're far from everything that impinges upon you in your life. I take experience as the thing to substitute for nurture because it is much more inclusive. And it includes not just social experience from your family and your peers and your community, but also experience in the more general sense. What foods did you grow up eating? What was the temperature uh, or the light cycle in the place where you grew up? We now know that these are things that influence traits. If we were to come back to height as an example, height is a trait that is very heritable, meaning a large fraction of it is by the gene variants you inherit from your parents. So if you live, say, in Western Europe or the United States or Canada, places that are fairly affluent, then on average, your height will be about 80% determined by the genes you inherit from your parents. However, if you live in a poorer situation where you might not get enough to eat or you might be battling chronic infectious diseases or be stressed by war or pollution, then you can't fulfill your genetic potential for height. And in that situation, the contribution of heredity to height is no longer 80%. It might be smaller, like 50 or 60%. So that's another important thing. When we throw around these percentages, they only work for certain populations. It's going to vary depending on what group of humans you're looking at. In the accidental mind, so you put forward that the brain is a kind of a hot mess and it's full of complexity, but also this kind of mystery of neural function, as you say, is a place of creativity, but kind of an ad hoc place. I wrote that book nearly 20 years ago. And at that time, 
When I looked at popular books about neuroscience, I didn't find very many that I liked. I found some, like Joe Ledoux's book, The Emotional Brain, that I thought were great, but I thought were a little bit too hard for a lot of general readers. And then I found other books that I thought were at an appropriate level, but either they bored me or I thought they were borderline fraudulent in some cases. They just got things wrong. So I thought, all right, time to put up or shut up and write your own brain book. And so I took an academic sabbatical. My family moved from the USA to England for a year, and I sat in the pub and at home, and I wrote a book about an introduction to the brain through an evolutionary lens. And I realized that one of the problems I had with science communication, particularly on television, is the brain was revered as this sort of ideally organized and engineered machine that could do all these wonderful things. And if you look at the science programs of the day, the brain is spinning against a backdrop of galaxies and some man with a very deep voice is intoning the brain, the most complicated entity that there has ever been. And when you actually look at the brain, you realize that just like everything else that evolved, it got stuck in certain design modes. In other words, when you have a car, right, most model years, they make very small changes in the car. And then every once in a while, they do a complete redesign of the whole thing. They wipe the slate clean and they do a complete redesign. That never happens in evolution. In evolution, you never get to wipe the slate clean. You're always dealing with the accumulated choices, if you will, that were selected for during a cross evolution. Then you have to make the best with what you got. And neurons, for example, the cells that are the building blocks of brains, are leaky and they're slow and they're deeply inefficient. And so if you want to build a computing device with them, there are only certain ways that you can do that. You can't just think like an engineer and work from first principles. And so really that, the thesis statement of the book, The Accidental Mind, is that so much of our human experience comes from the fact that the brain evolved in these quirky ways that were a pastiche. Francois Jacob famously said, evolution is a tinkerer, not an engineer. And the brain is the work of a tinkerer. It's a really interesting topic and one that, of course, gets politically fraught. We know a lot more about sexual orientation, who you like, than about gender identity, who you feel yourself to be. Because gender identity, it's really only being studied in an effective way in really just the last few years. And the studies we have are rather a few people in them, and they're not yet that reliable. What we do know about sexual orientation is that it is partly heritable, but it's pretty weak. In other words, if you just look at studies of families and you look at, in particular, studies of either fraternal or identical twins that were either adopt, raised together or apart, which is the geneticist's favorite way of trying to untangle these contributions, what you come out with is that in cisgender males, there's about a 25% of the variation in sexual orientation can be attributed to gene variants. And in females, the number is slightly different. I can't actually bring that number to mind. I think it's in the ballpark of about 20%. So these are significant effects, but they're far, far, far from the whole story. It's not like height, which is 80% heritable, 
or earwax type, dry or wet, which is 100% heritable and is a very unusual trait like that. Neither is it like speech accent, which is 0% heritable and is entirely dependent by the, the people you heard speak in the early years of your life, particularly your peers. So there is a small genet but significant genetic component to sexual orientation, and it's slightly different in males and females. And interestingly, it's not general. So for example, if I were to have a gay brother, then the chance of me being gay would become higher. But if I have a lesbian sister, that does not change the chance of me being gay, or vice versa. If a woman has a lesbian sister, then the chance of her being attracted to women is higher. And if she has a gay brother, it doesn't make any difference at all. So it's not like gayness or, or straightness is what heritability is acting on. It's attraction to males or attraction to females. And that's a subtle distinction, but I think it's very important. The other thing that is really interesting and fascinating is that there is, from a, a big meta-analysis that was done by the American Psychological Association, there is really no evidence whatsoever that links events in the family to your probability of being gay or straight or bi. So, well, that's a mystery. If it's not how you were raised by your family, and it's only a little bit genetic, what is it? Well, I think you had a hint of some of it when you're talking about hormones. There is some evidence that hormonal exposure in utero matters. So, for example, if, if biologically female fetuses are exposed to what we call androgens, the class of male hormones, that includes testosterone, that increases the probability that the child who is born and then grows up will be attracted to women when they grow up, even if that child is biologically female. Likewise, there seems to be something similar for gay men and exposure to estrogen and female sex hormones. That said, there's a lot of mystery. We're far from understanding in totality how the trait of sexual orientation arrives. And we also know that there are enormous cultural influences. There are societies that have sort of a revered place for homosexual behavior in the pantheon and others where it is really looked down upon. And that seems to have influence on how this trait develops. Well, I think you could certainly make the case that creativity has been useful for a long time in human evolution and probably in our pre-human ancestors as well. So it's not surprising that creativity is manifest in all kinds of ways, from building a trap to catch a critter to musical improvisation to making a sculpture. If I were to look at a brain scan and someone said, point to me the region that has the sense of self, I don't know that I could actually do that. So in other words, I accept this notion as a higher level explanation that can be really useful. I would say our ability to reduce that to brain regions and brain activities now is still really not there. I'm not saying it will never be there. It may emerge, but it hasn't emerged yet. Sense of self is a really, really interesting idea, and it's something that fascinates me because it is used both kind of at a very high level 
in a cognitive way, but neuroscientists think of sense of self more in terms of our senses that literally point inward. So when we think about the senses, we usually think about things like touch or vision or taste or smell or hearing that are designed to tell us not about our own bodies, but about the external world. But we also have all these senses that are interoceptive rather than exteroceptive. And they're telling me things like, how is my head oriented relative to gravity? That's my balance, vestibular sim. Where are my limbs in space at this moment that I can do even with my eyes closed, right? I know where my arm is even with my eyes closed because I'm getting information from my muscles that is being sent to my brain. I know how distended my bladder is and whether I'm going to need to go to the bathroom soon. I know my immune state, my breathing, my, my blood chemistry, my digestion. All of these things are senses of self. And the degree to which they influence higher cognitive processes is, to me, one of the really fascinating questions of neuroscience right now, and one that we're just really starting to understand. I think it's important because we're not like orangutans, right? Orangutans meet, they mate, and then the male runs off and you never see him again. He doesn't have anything to do with raising the child, right? So humans are unusual in the sense that we mate all the time, not just in the fertile times of the cycle, that most human sex is recreational rather than procreative, that in most cases, the male stays around to provide resources to the offspring. And this is probably related to the fact that we have the longest childhoods of any animal that's ever been studied. And the reason we have that is to because of our big fat brains. So the human brain at birth barely fits through the birth canal, and there can be all kinds of trouble in childbirth, but it's about 400 cubic centimeters, roughly the size of an adult chimpanzee's. But then it grows to become about 1,200 cubic centimeters in the adult. During that growing period, we're not yet able to live independently because the brain is still maturing. And the brain really isn't done maturing until approximately age 20, or some people would even argue a little later about age 25. So this makes humans quite atypical. And because we live in societies, and this, is, this has been true throughout the 300,000 or so years of Homo sapiens, it is estimated that for most of human society before the development of agriculture, we lived in bands of about 40, 50 people. But still, it's good in that situation to have everyone not have the same traits, whether those traits are physical or behavioral. It's good to have people who are particularly good at one thing or particularly good at another thing. Maybe someone in your social group has really good eyesight and can spot that food source far away in the bush, or someone else is a really good hunter, or someone else has really good hearing and knows when you're about to be attacked by the lion. It is beneficial to have creation in traits in populations of animals generally, but in humans in particular. I think there are neurobiological reasons why we in many societies have legal ideas that children and adolescents are not fully responsible adults. For example, we have the idea that they shouldn't be able to consent to legal contracts or 
consent to sexual activity. Or, and we have the idea that they are not culpable for their actions in the same way, hence juvenile court systems. These ideas, I think, are not just things that were plucked out of the air. The biology of human brain development is consistent with those notions. Another thing I'd like to mention, because I think it's relevant to what you were asking before about, is it good or why is it good to have variation in human populations? comes from the other part of traits. So there's experience, and there's experience broadly considered, both social and non-social, and there's heredity. And then there's this third thing, which is developmental randomness. And the best way to illustrate this is if you look at newborn so-called identical twins, what biologists like to call monozygotic twins. So essentially, these are babies that are born with the same DNA sequence. They've been lying right next to each other in the womb developing. So while there is a little bit of variation in what happens in the womb, there isn't that much. It's pretty much the same environment for baby A and baby B. And yet, even at the moment of birth, identical twin humans are not truly identical either behaviorally or physically. In other words, if you might look at them and say, oh yeah, boy, they look pretty similar. I could mix them up. They have similar faces, similar bodies. But if you look carefully, if you were to do a CT scan and say, all right, well, what's the size of the liver in baby number one versus baby number two for identical twins? It's not going to be identical. Likewise, one might already be more fussy than the other or make eye contact more right? And parents of twins know this. I'm a parent of twins myself. So this is brought home. My twins are fraternal. So there's something that already made these so-called identical twins not really identical, even at the moment of birth, where most of the experience that we like to think about, and certainly all of the social experience, hasn't happened yet. And so what is that thing? Well, what that thing is, is developmental randomness. And this comes from the fact that the development of really the whole body, but let's just focus on the brain, isn't absolutely uniquely specified as a wiring diagram in the DNA. So it's not like there's some huge blueprint of how all these hundreds of billions of neurons with their trillions of connections wire up to each other, and that's there in the DNA, and then the baby comes out exactly made to this plan. Rather, the instructions are kind of vague. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.